Hello and welcome to the Food Climate Podcast. I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week, I'm fortunate to share with you stories from climate tech founders, investors, and corporations sharing their unique insights into this fast-moving industry. Eventually, like me, you will learn, discover, and get inspired by those unique men and women who are contributing to the fight against climate change, and I hope it will help you to take a step in this formidable movement. So before we start, I just want to share a few words about us as this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg of what we do at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech movement. Our mission is to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech founders, allowing them to focus on scaling their solutions. How do we do that? Every day, we help founders access to resources and connections and gain the visibility they need to expand their growth. We do this in a number of ways with a membership platform, a Slack group with a growing number of founders, investors, and experts from around the world. And recently, we went one step further with a matching services to connect founders with top climate tech investors. Keep in mind that we are able to do all of this thanks to the support of our listeners and our members. Please like and subscribe share one episode with a friend, join a community, and if you haven't already done so, make a small donation to support our work. It really means the world to us. And now, enjoy the show! Hi everyone, today on the Tech for Climate podcast, we meet with Katie Hoffman, an entrepreneur, investor, and activist who built several companies from scratch before going down the VC route. He is now a partner at Regeneration VC, an early stage venture fund focused on adopting circular principles within consumer markets, but notably has Leonardo DiCaprio as an investor in the fund. He comes from a family of lawyers and always thought she would go down the same route until her mother suddenly got sick with cancer, which led her down a path of exploring what toxicity and pollution in our environment can cause someone she loves to get sick. Now she dedicates herself to deeply understanding the climate crisis, particularly the polluting industries. In this episode, Cathy talks us through the intersections of finance and policy with the climate crisis and deep dives into the $2.5 trillion textile industry and how changes in different parts of the value chain, such as using alternative non-toxic dyes, alternative fibers that can biodegrade in the natural systems can have a significant impact on reducing pollutants from the overall process. Second part of the show, Katie gives three tips for founders who are fundraising. She also shares a routine for maintaining a healthy work-life balance and her essential reading for climate tech founders. Katie, welcome to the show. Hi, Cathy. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I'm looking forward to the great opportunity to hear your story and get up to speed on what you guys are looking at with Regeneration VP, which is an early stage venture fund supercharging consumer powered climate innovation driven by circular and regenerative principles. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And it's great to be here. 
I know it's pretty early for you. So uh, thanks so much uh, again for taking the time uh, to come on the show. So before we start as the, the tradition on the show, if you could give us a 30 second introduction about Regeneration VC. Absolutely. So Regeneration VC is an early stage venture fund. We focus on adopting circular principles within consumer markets. So that looks like design, use, and reuse of materials. So our, our solution to solving the climate crisis is addressing consumer markets um, and new novel innovations that are going to transform the way that we design novel inputs. Uh, so bio-based materials and uh, the inputs that go into the stuff uh, that we use every day, uh, household items, uh, the clothes that we wear, um, the food that we eat, how we keep uh, those items in circulation. So the use phase, the brands that showcase um, some of these novel materials that are uh, bio-based and or regenerative and add value you know, to biological systems. And then the reuse side. So that looks like reverse logistics, enhanced recycling, ways that we can keep materials in circulation as long as possible. So let's start from the from the top. Can you tell us a bit more about your personal story and background? I mean, what are you passionate about? Uh, what do you do besides working on supporting and investing in uh, into founders? I mean, what makes you feel inspired or like your best self, as I always ask, who is Katie? Ah, yes. Uh, who who is Katie? Um, so I I got into investment by accident. Actually, um, I always thought that I would be a lawyer. I come from a family of lawyers. My dad has done a lot of work in human rights and uh, advancing the rights of you know individuals and and making sure that companies are held accountable for deleterious acts uh, that have happened uh, throughout the years and in, in our growth uh, with capitalism and. What happened with me was, I think it was 2008, my mother got sick with cancer and, you know, it kind of reoriented my world where, you know, I, I was going down this path of, of maybe doing corporate social responsibility and law and wanted to maybe follow in my father's footsteps um, and, and do more activism through law. And then when she got sick, I, I started to go down this path of what could cause someone, you know, the, the person who created me, right, to be sick uh, and 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 what are the reasons for that? And that led me down a path of really looking at toxicity in our environment, what we eat, uh, what the, the chemicals around us, pollution around us, um, and, and what is driving that. So uh, from that moment on, I, I dedicated myself to really understanding the crisis, the interlocking crises that uh, cause health challenges and also uh, the root of what I came to understand as climate change and the climate crisis and particularly, you know, polluting industries that were driving the crisis. So that that is that that is what made me tick is trying to figure out a way. How can we build better systems that don't make people in the environment sick? And I got through this path into investment, learning that, you know, we have a lot to do in terms of innovation and building new structures, both systemic structures, but also new tools and resources that are going to displace the existing ones that have been polluting our environment for quite some time and making people sick. And that's how you would define yourself? I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you would say I'm, I'm, I'm more of an activist in the sense that what does drive me and how I, I, show up to the investment table and what it makes me passionate is I love to build new beautiful things that are healthy in the world and 
I, I find myself at the intersection of if there's a problem, let's solve it and let's find beautiful ways to do that and invest in the entrepreneurs and incredible people that are out there solving problems and creating beautiful things. Um, and I also am an entrepreneur myself. So before before I started on the venture road, you know, as many venture capitalists are, you started several companies and got out there and tried to build systems myself and businesses and and uh, scale them up. So. I would say I'm an I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an investor, and probably an activist. But that's it. so zooming uh, out a little bit and looking back at your uh, at the different steps of, of your career, and you, you mentioned like this more like probably uh, aha moment or that you had with your uh, with your family on on one sense to really like uh, shift from uh, law to more like the um, I would say sustainable uh, world in itself. Uh, do you have during this whole journey that you had before joining the firm, maybe one or two pieces of uh, experience uh, that in a way uh, gave you an edge to join the, the firm as an, uh, as an investor? Absolutely. So in, I believe it was 2012, I was uh, still attending university in California and this was after the aha moment. I was writing my thesis on you know, the intersection of finance and climate challenges and how we could create better tools and mechanisms and systems. And I got an opportunity, a, a, a very amazing man, um, the late Tom Hayden, who was a, a senator in California for a long time and also you know, created a social movement here in the U.S. called SDS or Students for a Democratic Society. He and I had coffee together and you know, he said, while you're working on this, why don't you write a law? I'll, I'll work with you. So he had a line into the, the pro tem at the time, um, Senator Kevin DeLeon, and he said, we need, to, we need to put some of the work that you're doing into law, into California law. So that was my first experience of, oh, I'm, I'm working on this in terms of research and I'm you know meeting with a lot of folks within the university to try and shift their mentality on investments. So at the University of California, we were working to get them to adopt sustainable investment policies at the highest level. And when Tom came and said, let's do this for the state of California, let's implement these policies, let's get CalPERS, CalSTRS, which are the two largest public pension funds in California, let's put policy and practice in place so that they start to consider sustainable investment and also the risks associated with climate inside of their portfolio. So that opportunity really it shifted my mentality on, oh, you know, research and building to we can actually change law and regulation. And we were able to get parts of what, you know, I wrote and put forward passed. And it has shifted the way that CalPERS and CalSTRS think about their investments and the risks associated with polluting industries and, and maintaining investments in polluting industries. And from that moment, it launched me into, well, now we have to, if we're going to shift you know, billions of dollars with policy, and we're going to have these institutions really taking this seriously under under the letter of the law. We have to build the structures and the innovations that are capable of absorbing that capital. So that really was the pivot moment of, oh, let's pass regulation and let's work with institutions, and then let's go out and build the solutions on the ground that are capable of taking that capital. And that that started my entrepreneur journey and. I helped build and launch one of the first um, climate uh, ETFs or exchange traded funds on the New York Stock Exchange using an algorithm that uh, I helped develop with 
uh, a colleague at Stanford. It, uh, we have a, we have an old saying in, in California that Stanford and Berkeley, we don't get along, but when it comes to climate, we, uh, we built some beautiful things and it's uh, Etho Capital. We, we still are live on the exchange and it really showed me, okay, well, we can, we can pass regulation, we can work with institutions and we can build instruments capable of being low carbon and putting that capital to work into solutions that are more sustainable. So we just uh, prior this uh, interview to kind of like what would be the, the deep dive that uh, we would like to do together and and you raise up the the textile uh, industry. Um, I'd like to cover with you this uh, you know the challenges and opportunities that uh, you know the textile industry contributing into the fight uh, you know against uh, climate change today. So maybe we can start by giving if you could give to the audience an, an overview of the, the textile industry landscape to do today. I mean, uh, maybe what's the contribution in terms of like uh, greenhouse gas uh, along the, the value chain? I mean, which are the, the different type of greenhouse gas and, uh, and pollute, pollutants uh, sources that you have identified and that are specific to it? Uh, maybe if you could share some data points uh, for us to kind of like uh, understand uh, this, uh, this massive challenge as of today. Absolutely. So textiles and, uh, you know, particularly within regeneration, we focus on apparel and, and you know, consumer products that are, are taking in textiles. But the textile industry is it's about a two point five trillion dollar industry. So it is enormous. It is also one of the most polluting industries, you know, next to transportation um, and, and, and energy writ large when it comes to greenhouse gases. So roughly the estimates are that the textile and apparel industry, um, particularly fashion therein, is about 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And the challenging thing there is that's actually not the biggest issue with textiles and apparel. A lot of the biggest issues have to do with um, the, the other toxins that go into the processing, uh, the dyeing, the sewing, the cutting, right? So we have some really big challenges around the toxic chemicals that are going into what makes our textiles um, and, and the end product, what goes through the entire supply chain, right? And then also what some would say are abhorrent labor practices with a very distributed supply chain and value chain from, from source to end product. And then of course, you've got a significant waste challenge where a lot of textiles are being shipped to developing countries and landfilled and or you know coming into natural systems and it's not it's they're not necessary right these are not necessary things that we need to be doing right so fast fashion um getting a new t-shirt and then there is no such thing as a way right you you throw it out into a garbage bin and right now there are heavy subsidies um and and an, an unequal playing field i would say for shipping that waste, what we would call waste, to places where they're not processing it necessarily in a way that's for repurposing. It's just going into natural systems and creating other challenges such as methane or CH4, which has a, a lifeline that is actually more potent than uh, carbon, um, which we, we know to be the kind of prominent greenhouse gas. So anything when we're talking about waste and waste streams, we're, we're typically talking about methane and the challenge that comes with that. So across the entire chain of textiles, we've got significant challenges and we've got incumbent players, right? Very large organizations 
that often have not built their systems to address these issues quickly. Um, and it, it's something that, you know, at least from the regeneration perspective, we are working at different areas of the value chain to introduce solutions, be it alternative dyes that are non-toxic and use less water, uh, to alternative fibers that are bio-based and actually can biodegrade into natural systems. And of course, working with companies that have strong labor practices and are setting the bar higher uh, for for the economy and for people. So probably we dive a, a little bit on more like the existing alternatives along that value chain, and uh, we won't be able to cover everything today. But uh, uh, I, I'd like to just to understand to um, you know to to get a better understanding of like, I mean, you mentioned like those uh, large um, producers, those large uh, buyers. Like, could you tell us a bit more like how is the market uh, organized today around the the, the textile and apparel uh, industry? I mean. Which are the, the, the main producer and buyer and uh, where are they located? Are they all in the US? No, we know that it's probably in Asia as well. But uh, um, I mean, what is the incentive, uh, incentivized uh, today, incentive to, to, to create some change and to go towards those uh, better uh, alternatives that uh, we'll cover after? Absolutely. And, and you are right. It, Asia would be the largest producer and exporter of textile products. And that is growing as um, you know the Asian region is scaling up and, and growing in terms of GDP. So we know that that is uh, a huge market. We also have parts of Western Asia, the Middle East that are uh, growing uh, incredibly and, and becoming stronger within the marketplace. The EU and the US have have traditionally also been, you know, quite prominent within the industry with textiles, but now we are seeing regulation, particularly within the EU, that is working to ensure that, you know, there's extended producer responsibility, the sourcing of materials, that, you know, that there is um, structure around <clears throat> how textiles are produced, processed making it into the market and then ultimately at the end of life or end of use of those products where where they're going so that that i would say is probably the strongest form of regulation that we're seeing in in terms of the market because europe and you know the uk if we consider the eu uk um are are some of the largest consumers of these textiles as well and and so is the united states but the eu has because of some of the strict chemical regulations they have with something called REACH, um, they've been able to put some pressure, uh, at least downward pressure on producers to ensure that certain chemicals are not within their supply and that and, and that is regulated. And then there's, of course, you know, hazardous waste within the United States that, that you have to and California has some of the strictest regulations around that. So that has put some pressure on the textile industry to transform yet. We still are talking about a highly distributed sourcing and value chain where a lot of this is coming from countries where those regulations are not there. And the institutions or the regulatory agencies that are tasked uh, in Europe and you know, California to, reg you know, to actually implement these regulations don't oftentimes have the manpower or the capability to test these products and to actually implement at scale. Um, and, and it really does have to come from consumers as well as the producers, right? Because I think there's there's still a lot of challenges with the big one in the room would be subsidizing polyester or things that are plastic or petroleum based. We still have a ton of subsidies and cotton. So there's a ton of subsidies within the marketplace for two staples that are critical within the textile or at least fashion industry, um, but textiles writ large. And until 
there is a shift and an even playing field, I would say, on you know, the ways in which cotton is created, um, and oftentimes with suboptimal labor conditions in countries where there isn't heavy regulation for that. Um, at some would refer to that as child slavery, and there's been many cases around that that we've seen, um, as well as, you know, subsidized petroleum-based polyester products that don't have a high recycling rate, um, and, and the infrastructure is not there necessarily to recycle those products. Uh, so we're seeing, you know, cheap goods, cheap textiles that are coming, you know, from a subsidized system that that hasn't really integrated the full cost um, and value of those garments or textiles. Thanks so, so much for, for sharing this uh, uh, larger overview. So now that we know a little bit more like the, the magnitude of the of the problem here, like uh, like to just get a you know few uh, few example of like alternatives that you see along that uh, value chain uh, and as you mentioned it goes from the entrance to the way how you process and then the way how you uh, eventually uh, recycle or like the circularity behind that but uh, maybe you can give to the audience like some uh, one two or three example of uh, existing alternatives to this uh, you know new upcoming innovation uh, with their potential and weaknesses and, and challenge that you have uh, identified. Absolutely. So one of our investments um, is a, a apparel company um, and they, called Pangaea. They're based in the UK, and really we look at them. They're an apparel company, but we look at them more as a materials platform. So for the last several years, they've been testing um, and bringing in bio-based alternatives to your traditional polyester um, textiles and, and production. So. From, from the source and where they're growing the alternatives. And this could be anything from, you know, seaweed derived fibers to lyocell to, uh, you know, other, honestly, organic cotton is actually not the worst depending on where you grow it. And they have a strong strategy with working um, at the supplier level to ensure that the biodiversity protections in place uh, are, are are strong and that the, the sourcing and the development of those bio-based inputs is happening in alignment with the bioregion that they're in. So it's actually a regenerative process uh, in terms of farming at the source level, rather than an extractive one that's perhaps using pesticides, heavy water, and oftentimes we see uh, poor labor conditions as well. So with Pangaea, they're working more on the materials innovation side to create garments and other uh, and other textiles. And that has been wonderful to watch because they have a diversity of different inputs that are, like I said, all biologically based and are, are inspired by natural systems. So that's that's one example. Another example would be a group, another investment we made that actually was, you know, in partnership with Colorix, Color, I'm sorry, with Pangaea. And they're they're called Colorifics. They're also based in the UK. And they are a they use microbiology and microorganisms to create a dyeing alternative that is less toxic, well, 100% less toxic, so no harmful chemicals. And uh, that I think they achieve, you know, at least upward of an 80% water reduction because dyeing has an incredible water uh, imprint. And it's able to catch to the types of materials that 
your garments need or your textiles need in order for the performance to, to make sense. So we're talking about, you know, a bio-based input that is actually achieving color parity with uh, the more harmful alternatives. And we're really excited by the promise of microbiology and biomanufacturing to get us closer to uh, not just dyes, but, you know, anything that can go into the textile uh, to, to make it function well uh, to what consumers are accustomed to and also what large brands, you know, the H&Ms of the world are, are looking for in terms of performance. Um, the last one I'll say, which is also exciting, it's a, a recent investment that we just made. Um, it's it called uh, na na Nature Coding. Sorry, I'm going to repeat that because we can edit. Um, Nature Coatings International. And uh, they are an incredible firm that uses um, woody pulp from, you know, tree waste, all right, FSC certified tree waste into a closed loop pyrolysis process, which actually is less energy intensive, less water intensive, and it has a complete closed loop system to create a biochar that then can do what, what is a displacement for carbon black, which is an incredibly polluting uh, dye, but also used in just about anything that is black in our world, uh, has carbon black associated with it, and it's often petroleum-based and it is highly toxic. It has PM 2.5, which is some of the most uh, granular particulates that are incredibly toxic to human health um, and other the health of other species. And it is able, you know, through their process, they're able to create, you know, a dye as well. But it, but the the carbon black alternative that they've created can go into other products as well. So, how to be in this value chain, like? We shared the, the maybe like one or two, uh, I would say like uh, part of it that is very uh, complicated to uh, to replace uh, the traditional like uh, you know pollutant and and, and I would say uh, dark uh, matter that we're using uh, in the revolution. Do you see like any uh, any place where you would like to see innovation and where it's uh, excessively uh, diff difficult uh, as of today? to have something that uh, can be uh, viable uh, economically and uh, also at a larger scale? Yeah, so so that's a really great question. And my partners and I were having this conversation yesterday. I was mentioning microorganisms and biomanufacturing. That is probably the most exciting opportunity to displace uh, traditional petroleum-based products that you know right now are just cheap, easy to produce, and and often subsidized. And it's what we've been doing for quite a while. And the incumbent infrastructure is designed for petroleum-based products, which affect everything within the textile, apparel, and fashion industries. So the more we can get biomanufacturing online and we can scale up either plugins to existing infrastructure that are lower cost and or moving towards facilities that can process at scale uh, the microorganisms and and you know biological inputs necessary to displace petroleum-based inputs. The U.S. has has put forward you know some subsidies recently. There was an executive order in 2022 from the Biden and Harris administration to ramp up biomanufacturing here in the U.S. There is certainly a lot of emphasis now, I think, from governments on how we can create this infrastructure, but currently it is not at parity with existing and we need to ramp it up. So to, to close this, um, this section, I mean, what are the, the major constraints that you have identified? Do you see any major roadblock or is it the need of 
I mean, you, you covered already about like the, the policy uh, in place. Uh, do we need uh, some new ones uh, to be applied? I mean, what needs to happen to accelerate the movement and, and have a decarbonized textile alternative going mainstream? So all of those um, solutions that you're mentioning and, and many others that are uh, out there today, I mean, what needs to happen to go mainstream? I mean, and how far are we at today? I, it's a great question. So some of the largest fashion brands, you know, carrying LVMH, H&M, Zara have all adopted, you know, policies around circularity, policies around lowering their carbon footprint. And many of them are actively investing, including in some of the companies that we invest in, in these alternatives to bring them to scale. What I was mentioning before was more on the first part of the value chain, right? So the design of new products. One area that I believe is, is going to continue to grow and where it would be wonderful from the consumer side is the reverse logistics side. So keeping materials in circulation longer, recycling materials. We, we've invested in companies that, you know, help reuse and resale. We've obviously seen things like, you know, ThreadUp and, and Poshmark, which are quite popular and have, you know, become more mainstream and, and raised quite a bit of capital to, to bring, you know, their, their circular business models online. So I do think there's a big opportunity, not just in the new materials and inputs that we're putting into our textiles and products that we use therein, but it's also keeping those materials in circulation and ramping up the infrastructure, the logistics, and the systems that en enable us to resale, reuse, repair, right? There's a, there's big movements out there that are consumer-led often to allow consumers to repair. There have actually been laws in place that that made it far cheaper for consumers to get rid of something than to repair it. So there's, there's now a movement, I believe, that says, hey, it's actually better for us to keep this in circulation or to swap things or to give it to a logistics company that will, you know, wash it in a healthy way and recirculate. Um, so I, I do think that there that is going to be a huge movement because fast fashion, as as much as things change seasonally, and I do believe that demand is not going anywhere in the sense that people still like to buy things that make them feel good. And there's still fashion week and fashion seasons and that's fine. We are seeing a movement though. And I mean, we just saw it at the Oscars with, you know, people wearing completely recycled and refurbished clothing. And that's absolutely gorgeous. And that demonstrates that there's, there's a cultural shift that's happening as well as some of the larger brands recognizing not only because of regulation, but because of cost, they're going to need to keep things in circulation. And there is like, the last thing I'll say is the next generation, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a mid-millennial, right? So I'm I'm in the the middle group, but the generations coming after me, you know, my niece and nephew who are 14 and 18, they want products that are healthy, right? So the demand is shifting. They don't want to be polluting the environment. They they weren't raised maybe under the same consumer mentality uh, because they're living in a world with so much waste around them and climate change is exigent. So they're saying, hey, why don't we have better? Our demand is there. So get give us better products. And we want to make sure that it's verified. We want to be able to scan, you know, a label and know exactly where it came from and that it wasn't using child labor or products that are causing the environment harm. So or inputs, I should say. So I do think that, that we're seeing a big shift on multiple ends. And within the next several years, it's going to be quite exciting for the industry um, and a lot of the displacement of some of the more harmful inputs.
Last question uh, for this section on the, on my side. Um, I mean, you're at the forefront of, uh, of this innovation. You see so many innovation passing by. I mean, can you tell us maybe like uh, what, uh, according to you, what are the US advantages and weaknesses in regard of this innovation and the, the, the production uh, that could lead uh, to decarbonize the textile uh, industry? How do you compare the US versus uh, China and the uh, EU? <laughs> Yeah, so that's a really great question. We aren't doing a lot of production or source of textiles in the US. We're importing a lot. We are a consumer of a lot of textiles. So in terms of an advantage, I think that we have an incredible advantage in our consumer power and purchasing power in what our you know demand cycle will look like. And like I was just mentioning with the next generation coming up and actually putting pressure on companies to meet the requirements uh, that that they say they're going to do. If you say you're going to address climate change, what does that look like? Show us transparency. We have a cell phone. I also think that, you know, we have a big move, movement amongst the government right now as well to keep resources in circulation here in the U.S. as a competitive uh, advantage to outsourcing to places like China, where we have been quite reliant on importing cheap goods. And the idea is we would like to stop subsidizing that and perhaps put more investment into infrastructure around keeping both critical resources in circulation as well as textiles so that we are not also reliant on shipping waste out, which has been a big challenge. The U.S. has shipped a lot of waste including textiles to other places in the world. And we have to address that issue. And this current administration is definitely incentivizing that um, in, in alignment with incentivizing, you know, through the Inflation Reduction Act and, you know, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, not specific to textiles, but certainly specific to incentivizing manufacturing that's going to be low carbon, incentivizing systems and processes that are going to have that lower carbon footprint from a measurable perspective. So I think when it comes to textiles, we are going to see a lot more of that within the ecosystem as well. I think that Europe is far ahead of the curve with policies that have been passed. Uh, the circular economy was incentivizing how to keep, you know, textile production, uh, you know, less harmful. But of course, when it comes to, you know, sourcing goods, there's higher regulate regulatory standards in terms of testing, understanding, mapping your value chain, ensuring that, you know, if there is tariffs, for example, like it, there isn't a subsidy for sourcing from cheaper places that often are not using or aligned with the regulatory standards. And then of course, you know, the recycling standards in the EU are, really ramping up when it comes to textiles and, and what producers and companies are going to have to be accountable for. Any uh, question I should have asked for this uh, first part of the interview that I didn't on the textile uh, topic? Hmm. That's a great question. <laughs> I, 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 I don't, I don't, um, no. Well, anything you would like to add? Uh, you know, I think you you had the uh, you have been uh, generous enough to to share a lot of uh, super uh, insights uh, in there. But uh, uh, always open for for an extra add-on if you have. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that is 
is exciting beyond just regulation. The, the last thing I'll add, because I know I talked quite a bit about that, and that's also a part of my background. I think that it really is important to emphasize that demand is shifting and that, you know, especially after the pandemic, right, where a lot of consumers are, you know, ordering things online and, you know, things are being shipped and there's obviously, you know, sending garments back. Happening around the shift in demand as well. And I think that we are going to see not just from the regulatory side, but also the carrot side. So like the stick is there for sure, but we're going to start seeing a lot more innovation because demand is shifting and uh, we have the technology now that maybe we didn't have five, 10 years ago to enable some of those you know, logistics systems that are going to be far better for the environment. Thank you so much. So let's go into the, the specifics of uh, Regeneration B3. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about the, the story, the genesis of it? I mean, what was the initial uh, gap uh, seen by the, the, the partners who started the, the fund and like uh, that led to the, the thesis behind it? Absolutely. So um, my partner, Michael Smith, so Michael Smith and Dan Fishman are the two general partners and um, myself and David Levine are our partners as well. And we all came in together. I think it was 2020. Uh, I have known Michael for almost 10 years now, and he and I came to know each other through a couple of investor networks that you know were focused on climate. And he and I always saw this shift no matter what, like how are we going to invest in solutions that are profitable? So it's no longer a question of, you know, that's a nice thing to do, or that's an impact investment that's going to lose me money, or that's philanthropy, but actually creating the marketplace to drive deep decarbonization and, and shift multiple industries. So I actually remember very vividly, Michael and I were walking on the beach in California, which we both are from California and love it very, very much. And obviously when you're looking at the beautiful ocean and, uh, you know, seeing life around you and and uh it, it really reminds you oh this is what you know why we invest the way that we do and we were walking and he he was we were kind of talking about okay what are the solutions that we need to focus on right we're deep in a pandemic people are disconnected we can't lose momentum on investing in climate solutions and he and i had shared deals and worked on different things before and he said look i've got this idea my partner, you know, Dan and I have made several investments uh, with each other before. We know consumer markets really well. And he gave me a stat that was actually, you know, I had no idea. He said that, you know, based on research that a group called the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has done, about 45% of greenhouse gas emissions come from materials. So it's not just the energy and transport, which is very, you know, standard when you're thinking about how we decarbonize or, or you know, really address the climate crisis. But what what we you know eat what we you know everything that goes into the products we consume and the material inputs therein and i went deeper into the kind of science behind that and and what you know ellen macarthur had produced there's also an incredible think tank called circle economy and i i was i was sold that we for a long time within climate consumer has not been something that you hear and think oh that's that's an area where you're going to have a huge impact it often pushes the problem onto an individual right or people think oh it's my fault that i couldn't buy something recycled or that the system isn't there or what have you and or it's too expensive 
And what I really realized was if we could shift the materials and invest in innovations that are that are going into what you know we touch, what we use, what's all around us, we could make a huge dent. And also in the process of doing so, we can bring people on board and shift culture so that everyone is saying, oh, like my household is low carbon and also I'm a part of the solution and it's easy to do. It's not expensive. It can be accessible to everyone and, and solve the crisis. So that that really brought me in and the partners and I, you know, we all got together. We, we founded the fund and uh, raising capital in the middle of a pandemic is something that uh, I'm sure you've, you've heard from others is, is certainly interesting. A lot of Zoom calls, but we were able to close Fund One. It's our first time investing together, but uh, Fund One in March 2022. Uh, we've made We've now approved 12 investments uh, from Fund One, and uh, we're going to continue scaling up the platform and, you know, accelerating our our investment thesis and also um, our approach globally to bringing households and consumer products into the center of the climate conversation and particularly the climate tech conversation. So, what do you offer to uh, to founders that you invest in? I mean, uh, usually, you know, there's like capital, uh, there's access to a network or resource. I mean. What are the, the challenges in a way that uh, you find very specific to them and that you try to address with your with your offer? Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, A, I'll take one step back, which is we have seen more deals than I anticipated within the marketplace, right? There has been, there is so much innovation and it's very exciting. And there is a lot of capital going into climate tech far less into consumer climate tech. Um, we're actually one of the few that that does that in the space. But there is more supply of innovation than there is invest investment going into that innovation. And I do think that there is perhaps a mismatch from where founders are at with either a technical innovation um, that needs to plug into an existing system or the amount of capital necessary to take a truly transformative solution to the next level, which often is a very long process, right? And we're starting to see some of the benefits of you know, the first waves of clean tech where we're, we're now seeing commercial viability. And it did take 10, 15 years for some of these investments to get to that level of maturation. So I think for us, when we're working with founders, we do invest at an early stage, right? So oftentimes these companies have some revenue, but they're about to go, you know, commercial and we're, we're investing at the seed or series A, as we call it in the US. And we're really there to help think about, okay, how do we get this to scale, right? Whether that's through offtake partnerships, whether it's through support, even with media and messaging. So companies and founders know how to communicate with uh, their potential partners, offtake partners, um, potential future investors, uh, and of course their customers. And then we, I think, add you know a unique value in that we think about things holistically and also supporting companies with being ahead of where policy might be going and finding ways to you know create systems that enable them to to work within a marketplace that is either regu you know, regulated uh, or assuming that it will be regulated, right? Thank you so much. I think it's uh, it's a lot of like uh, you know added value that uh, you guys are bringing to the to the table for for founders in that uh, in the space. I thought that, uh, and that's a burning question. Uh, I saw that Leonardo DiCaprio is uh, in the advisory of the of the fund, which is very exciting to have uh, such a great personality on board. I mean, 
Can you tell us a bit more about like uh, how is he helping the, the firm to accelerate its impact? I mean, why does in a way onboarding public figures matter and how does he support uh, Regeneration VC? Well, great question. He is a wonderful human being and really walks the walk when it comes to the investments uh, in the environment. And obviously, for someone as high profile as he is, uh, you know, we've learned a lot about him in the media, but he has an incredible team around him that works closely with us. Um, and we, th the great thing is he's not just an advisor, he's also an investor in our fund. So he has skin in the game. And what's more is we collaborate on deals. So we've co-invested with him on several deals. We share deal flow with each other. We've brought deals to him that he's now come in and invested or his team has come in and invested on. So we really see it as a collaborative partnership. And then of course, you know, his profile enables us to reach consumers in a way that, you know, perhaps uh, someone who is not a celebrity of that caliber does. We have a few other celebrities, you know, in the docket who have also, you know, co-invested with us. And that's been really interesting. Michael and Dan have a background um, and they are based, you know, in Southern California and have done a lot of work with celebrities. Michael actually used to be a world-renowned DJ before he turned investor. Um, and so, oh, he, he's always run businesses, but that was his passion. So, you know, it, it's been really interesting for me kind of coming from more of the policy, nerdy, wonk, you know, climate scientist background to collaborate with both Michael and Dan and then get an opportunity to work with incredible folks like Leonardo DiCaprio, who really put their money where their values are and help us scale up these innovations, you know, using that muscle. So which uh, sectors are the, the most promising for you today in terms of like uh, what I call ICR or impact uh, cash return? I mean, meaning building uh, impactful companies while creating highly profitable business. Do you see any underdogs or subsectors that are, uh, you know, really exciting you uh, right now besides the, the whole textile, textile part that uh, we discussed together? Yeah, I mean, I think so critical resource recycling and recycling technology. So the ability to eliminate the need for virgin resources and actually sort some of the existing waste streams that we have. So we've invested in a couple of companies that have different approaches to this, more on the SaaS side and artificial intelligence. So enabling us to you know, scan uh, municipal solid waste streams, identify what's there and then sort appropriately so those materials can be reutilized. And I think that we're going to see a lot of innovation in that space. And the the more we can stop uh, mining rare earth minerals and or wasting, you know, what we've already created in the world. And I, I'm, I'm sure many are familiar with uh, Redwood Materials who raised a pretty significant round on, on the recycling and upcycling front. And I think that they're making some significant breakthroughs. And I'm very excited to see where that space goes. And the infrastructure is not currently there uh, for it to be as successful as I think many of us would want. But I think we're going to see huge strides in that space. All right. So, um, I, on the opposite side, what we always uh, ask uh, also to investors is like, what is to you, according to you today, like maybe some areas where you feel there's too much hype and it might be uh, maybe like uh, not worth it to uh, spend time and, uh, and, and, and money and resources uh, on it. Uh, any like example without, uh, you know, the need of naming uh, any companies? Of course. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I actually think my point earlier about 
it took, you know, 10, 15 years to see some of what we're now seeing as gaining significant traction. Um, that that took a lot of time. So I have a lot of respect for the investors who have come before us and around us who are elevating a lot of incredible clean technologies. I do think right now there is a perhaps oversaturation in, you know, kind of artificial intelligence and SaaS-based, uh, you know, solutions, not that we don't invest in some of those as well, but there is a need, especially within thinking about, you know, design, reuse and use of materials for hardware that enables that, right? And oftentimes, you know, when it comes to some of the software plays, you see a lot of the same types of companies um, and, you know, valuations have been a little bit wonky and oftentimes, you know, these tools don't necessarily integrate um, into solving the problem that perhaps they they set out to solve. Now, I do, with that being said, I think there is a lot of incredible innovation in SaaS and artificial intelligence that's worth us paying attention to. We don't focus as much on that. I would also say, you know, we've seen a lot of breakthroughs and focus on, you know, fusion, hydrogen, you know, deep, deep decarbonization of transportation. And there is a lot of capital within the climate tech world, and especially also from institutional investors and development finance institutions that are hyper-focused on making, you know, the, that a reality, right? So decarbonizing uh, industry in that sense. I do think that it's not an area where we want to put as much of our energy because we, as I mentioned, you know, 45% of greenhouse gas emissions. And then we're also talking about, you know, toxics and uh, waste and the pollution of our oceans. So we're really focused on solving, you know, some of the material challenges uh, on, on that front and less around transport and industry. So speaking about uh, about impact, uh, at the contrary of uh, other funds, uh, you don't have like a specific like uh, you know target like uh, we invest only in uh, you know ten gigaton uh, greenhouse gas uh, avoided uh, companies or like that can avoid that at, uh, in the term. So what is like uh, your criteria? Do you have any uh, any of them? Any specific process? Any frameworks uh, that you uh, that you use or do you rely on scientists and experts to validate the the tech and the impact or Maybe some some social impact as well. Absolutely. So we created an internal process, or you know, that I helped spearhead, called the regenerative evaluation gauge. So when we screen companies, do diligence on them, deeper diligence, and then ultimately make an investment decision and bring them into the portfolio, we then start a monitoring process. And the the gauge enables us to look at you know six key themes that have all been benchmarked to global standards. So targets set you know by the Convention on Biological Diversity, uh, which just recently had COP15 in Montreal, uh, science-based targets which are associated with the Paris Accord, and of course the Sustainable Development Goals, which you know the, there's 17, but I'd say about six or seven are highly relevant to us. But with with Reg as we call it, the six themes are waste resource and material footprint, toxics and chemicals, um, and carbon and greenhouse gas emissions uh, or climate footprint, and human, which is everything from end, end product and the consumer to the ways in which our companies are treating you know, their suppliers and their supplier code of conduct and how the entire value chain looks and the impacts on human health, labor, et cetera. So we have a pretty comprehensive and holistic approach. And each one of those categories has 
subcategories that apply based on international standards. And we've used 150 different frameworks and over 5,000 different data points and metrics to come up with the system. Um, and, and we tailor it to each company depending on you know, the industry they're in, their market share, the projections for growth, the geography. Uh, so it's not exactly streamlined in the sense of this company is going to be abating a gigaton of carbon over, you know, the course of the lifetime. It's more uh, holistically, we want to reach these top line targets set by, you know, around biodiversity, around climate, and we want to, and, and waste reduction, zero waste. We want, you know, no harmful chemicals, right, based on, on reach standards and, and especially substances of high concern or very high concern. So we have, we have screening and standards, but in terms of targets, it, we don't have the same approach that some funds in climate do that, you know, our entire portfolio is going to abate two gigatons of carbon by this time. We want to participate based on our market share in enabling that to happen um, and collaborating with other funds that are doing that because that is in alignment with science-based targets in the Paris Accord. We are very, very much focused though on waste and toxic reductions as well and ensuring that we preserve the health of natural ecosystems and enabling the supply of better inputs that can biodegrade, compost, you know, and, and actually regenerate biological diversity. So what's your uh, what's your personal view on the on the climate crisis? I mean, uh, what would you say to to the people who feel demoralized and uh, by all the already visible consequences of uh, of climate change? I mean, are we doomed? You know, as I studied climate science, and obviously, you know, my origin story is you know watching my mother get very sick. Um, and I think we've all lived through, especially being indoors and and kind of being pressed to. Our, our own humanity and and sometimes the fragility of that humanity. Um, I have never ending hope. Um, there's this. There's an amazing, amazing woman. She she helped lead um, Costa Rica in their their adopting the first climate policy. Her name's uh, Cristiana Figueres. She and she has an entire book on climate optimism, and I highly recommend that for people to read because. We have to be optimistic. The solutions are all around us, right? So the in embedded infrastructure that we're seeing that may be driving or accelerating the crisis, yes, it is scary. And we are facing some pretty real planetary um, challenges. So we're, and, and it's going to continue. That That is something I will say, it is a scientific fact. The IPCC reports are very, very gloomy, but they've been the same for, for many, many years. I think the way that we can focus on hope and optimism is continue to build solutions that displace those very things that are driving the crisis and use this as perhaps the best opportunity in human history to reimagine how we build economies, how we work and collaborate with each other, how we relate to the natural world and hopefully put you know systems back in place that we maybe have displaced without knowing it. So I think it's a huge it's a huge opportunity and I'm super inspired by the next generation. They're super like they grew up with, you know, iPhones in their hand and they have digital connectivity and I understand that, you know, the world is on their shoulders but also at their fingertips. So I have this uh this hope and also inspiration that if we continue investing in not just based on, you know, their age, but the folks that are out there building every day and have great ideas and can bring that into the world, we have an incredible opportunity to shift shift the tide. So how can the community of uh, investors, experts, founders listening to the show can uh, can help you and uh, what's next for Regeneration VC? 
Yeah. So it's an exciting time. I know that <laughs> it's the world is a little bit wonky and things have been uh, shaking out in an interesting way within the markets. And we're all feeling uh, a bit of that pressure. So I, I certainly am not Pollyanna-ish on the fact that we've we've seen some some headwinds. But right now, I think for us, we're super excited to continue building, you know, public-private partnerships, working with regulatory agents, you know, and 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 collaborating with a lot that we were seeing come online with the Green New Deal and the you know Inflation Reduction Act, and how we can ensure companies we've invested in at an early stage can get to the next level of you know maturity. So we're always looking for you know partnerships and ways that we can support our companies and help in their health and scale. Um, and and yeah, we're we're continuing to build our platform as most venture capital funds do. You you know you don't just stop with fund one. So we will definitely continue to scale up and deploy capital. Um, any question I should have asked you for this uh, part of the the show, or anything that you would like to add? Uh, well, let's see. I think um... something we didn't cover that you wanted to uh, to share prior going to yeah, the definitely. I think, yeah. So, so one thing I'll say is, you know, if you look at the statistics. I think less than 4% of venture capital is going to female-led companies. I'm very passionate about this because as someone who is a female founder and is also one of very few women within the industry, um, I am incredibly focused on how to create more space within the investment ecosystem for women, for, for folks of color, for people from different backgrounds, both founders and professionals to participate in this process and really transform the industry industry. So we do start seeing uh, companies coming online that are more representative of what the world looks like. So I think that, you know, when you're talking, we were asked, you asked me about what, what we need. I think we're really focused on how do we invest in companies that are going to represent the diversity that's needed, not just for the consumer base that we, that we are serving, but also for the planet. And we believe that that is fundamental to investment decision-making. Um, and also, Proudly enough, more than half of our portfolio is, you know, founded by women um, or folks that identify as women. And that to us wasn't even part of our screening process necessarily. It just happened to be that, you know, these founders were incredible and were paying attention. And I do think that there's a an opportunity for a lot more of the investment community to pay attention to some of the kind of overlooked founders who are building incredible innovations in the world and do need more capital in order to bring them online. Thank you so much, uh, Kathy, for your time, incredible insight in the industry. Uh, I'm so excited to see so many uh, you know, brilliant people like you putting so much time and effort to move the, the ball towards a, a better and cleaner world. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and uh, look forward to speaking again sometime Thanks soon. again for joining us on the Tech Food Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned next week for more Climate Tech Insights. In the meantime, head on over to our webpage at startupbasecamp.org where we have lots more insights and resources for anyone wanting to get involved in climate tech. If you find our resources useful, please consider donating to support our small self-funded team. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and see you next time.